Hello and welcome to Hidden by Things with Laura Horton, the podcast that seeks to demystify and destigmatize hoarding and collecting behaviors by talking to people about their relationship with things. Whoa, whoa. I'm your host, writer Laura Horton. I'm also a person with hoarding behaviors, and it took me a long time to recognize as the media and arts narratives are so extreme. That's why I wanted to start this podcast. In each episode, I'll be talking to a different person about their experiences with hoarding, putting them, not their things, first. My guest today is Madeline McMahon. Madeline is an actor and comedian from Gloucestershire. In 2021, she won the Max Turner Prize, was a BBC new comedy longlister and funny women semi-finalist. Maddie is also in my new play Breathless, which charts my experience of hoarding disorder. Welcome, Maddie. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. (gasps) Maddie, you're playing Sophie, who is loosely based on me. What was your knowledge about hoarding before starting working on this play? Oof, good question. Earliest memories would probably be TV shows and things like that. Programmes where people would go into someone's house and almost for shock value, I I suppose, looking back on it. I mean, I probably, like everybody else, probably found it fascinating and entertaining. And of course, they would choose those extreme examples where they'd like carved out a little nook in their house. And, you know, there's something incredible about watching the way that other people live, isn't there? So programmes like that are always going to be interesting. Other than that, I didn't know much about it. I lived with somebody at one point in my life, a very good friend who I know struggled with the clearing out of things when we left. What followed on was a bit of a conversation about how they felt about their possessions and over the years some funny things about some of the things that they brought home. And we would laugh about it. We're never going to use that. One of the things was I remember a urinal that they thought would make a good garden ornament. We didn't have a garden. Things like that, which I know it seems silly and funny and they absolutely are. It was so genuine. It was so and a very creative person, much like yourself actually, and full of ideas and could see the potential in everything I suppose. Like could see like, oh this could turn into that and that could turn into that. But we had like no space to store these things in our flat. Um, So that prompted a bit of a conversation and then weirdly I think when I auditioned for this I just started reading uh, for Christmas uh, my, my good friend Richard gave me a biography of Victoria Wood in it she's go, they go back and they, they start talking about her childhood and she talks about her, they talk about her mother who was a hoarder and that her house was full again a very creative woman a musician and she would sew things she made amazing things but the house was full of stuff and she talks about the bit in the book I'm just not wanting to have people around and that she would actively get people to drop her off down the end of the road she would never have friends back it was sort of an unspoken thing and that's probably the extent of my knowledge to be honest and how do you think it's changed now working on the show Oh, very interesting. Because I think we, you know, we've had lots of conversations about what it... And perhaps as I've got older, I've understood that not everything, not every mental health condition, not every not everything that we would identify as being an issue for somebody needs to look as extreme to everybody else. Like whether that's addiction, whether that's having an unhealthy relationship with something, doesn't look the same to everybody. So it doesn't have to be that you're consuming a lot of something compared to other people or not enough of something in order for you to know that the relationship with you have with it is kind of not working for you anymore and I think it's been a really brilliant conversation about that about like we talked about didn't we loads and loads of like very wealthy aristocratic people have houses full of things but because their houses are massive nobody notices but these are people with hoarding tendencies these are people who don't want to give up their belongings and often are allowed to thrive in that environment because there's often places where there isn't necessarily much else going on in terms of careers or love or often inherit these homes full of things from parents who maybe sent them off to private school and didn't give them much love and the belongings are what they have left and I think to a certain extent we can all understand where it stems from we all 
all imbue objects with memories. How many times do you hear of somebody say, oh, you know, when my gran or when somebody passed away, like, oh, I really hoped that I would get that X, that bookshelf, that ring that I used to fiddle with of hers when I was little or something like that. And you go, that thing doesn't hold the memory of that person. That thing lives in your head. But the love and the nostalgia that we attach is something that everybody does. So I can understand how if that becomes a passion, that becomes a hobby, that becomes... I can see how that spiral, if you like, if it hits you at a time in your life when other things feel out of control, that can be the thing that you control. And that I really understand. And that definitely taps into lots of other things that I have more experience of. Yeah. And with your housemate, how was that to live with? Did you find that frustrating? Do you think they realised, did they think that they had hoarding behaviours or was it sort of maybe not acknowledged? Interesting, because the word must have come up somewhere for me to have acknowledged a link there. In the house that we lived in, it was a shared flat, three of us lived there, and he actually had the smallest bedroom at his request, I seem to remember. And so it was only when things started to spill out into the living room, which was very small, we had an understanding of that because he had the smallest bedroom, so that seemed fair, except that he had a lot of other bits and pieces and they would creep out and they'd spill out a very kind other housemate of ours was great at approaching it and they had a great relationship and so did I with him and generally speaking I think he found it okay we would say oh it's got a bit now you know the drinks cabinet that you've got in the corner is getting bigger and that piece of furniture that you snuck into the corner is now full of your books and it sort of happened like that because we didn't have a very big place the amount of the size of objects you're talking about is probably very small compared to a lot of people it would probably only fill one room of a regular house but because we were renting in London and we had no space it soon became a bit of an encroachment a bit of a problem not a problem I, that would be very unkind I'm sure he would think that just hear me say that would be like oh but we had a shared attic space the access to which was through my room and he did sort of start to own that slightly for squirreling things away and I started to realize when we moved out how much stuff he'd sort of squirreled away in there as I said in a regular house that wouldn't have been much stuff it was I think to do with the not being able to when out and about see something and go oh I want I can't just leave it I want to take it home and almost look after it and actually he's somebody and perhaps maybe that you get a chance to talk to him uh, hopefully I know he had a, a really bad grief for a, a, like a pet when he was younger perhaps tied up with some other things I don't know and it was almost like when he would bring things home he couldn't bear the thought of them being left there like a lost pet or something do you know what I mean like he brought home an air raid siren one day that was broken you know and which seemed so silly and, and it was quirky and he's that kind of person like he sees he sees the usefulness in everything but yeah we definitely had our occasional moments <laughs> I totally rate that I remember when we went swimming yesterday mm, mm-hmm. and I chucked away my swimming costume because it was literally threadbare on the bum and I realised like it wasn't going to service me anymore I said goodbye to it before I put it in the bin interesting had a little kind of memorial for it in my head that's so interesting and I remember thinking at the time I wondered if you'd thrown it away in a public bin because then you wouldn't have the option to go back and get it back out again I think I'm past that stage now but I think when I was younger and actually recently I got rid of some things for charity and my mum I was like I'll just leave them and I'll do it and she's like nope and she took them all because she was like you will not do it they'll start coming back out and and they probably would have done. And how do you find that now to be around people that, because you've shared with them your habits or where your sort of areas of difficulty are, do you find that helpful when someone says, oh no, if it's okay with you, I'll just help you by taking them away? Or is that still frustrating? Probably depends. With my mum, we've had enough arguments about it that I've and I'm at a stage now where I'm like no no get rid of it it's fine but in the past I probably would have felt very anxious about that because in my head I probably would be we've even had it in rehearsals going into the costume department and having free 
things having access to things that they're chucking away and I went a bit not I went up on my own and went through it all came down with huge piles which in hindsight we should not have uh, we, we should have offered some support there, that was on me yeah. you know but next yeah. thing we knew you appeared with piles of clothes I was like ah <laughs> I thought the role players thought they were being very helpful and they were but but in a way what they were doing is letting somebody loose in their wildest fantasy enabled. <laughs> yeah you were like look at all this stuff I found I was like okay how much are we enabling what's going on how much can I try and make you accountable for what goes back to the flat yeah yeah I took six things yeah home, you I did think, yeah. and we've talked about some of them we have talked about some of them. Well, that's important isn't it so like a bit hard a long journey I'm sure and you're staying with me so and that's a big deal for me I think now owning my own home I don't know what my space feels like to you my bedroom is messy but it's so much better than it was but mainly because most of my stuff is still at my parents house and it's still yet to be organized but it's a big deal letting people in and that's part of the play as well and I found that very interesting because I think one of the first things you said when you welcomed me into your home was oh it's a bit messy and I could not think of a less messy place and that's interesting do you think because at one point your relationship of quantities of things got a bit skewed from what you'd like it to be that now you struggle to see what is quote normal yeah I don't really know what's normal I had the metro come to my house a while ago to photograph the flat for a piece and I just bunged everything away and it looked immaculate it looks immaculate in the pictures but that's not the case I was dating someone earlier this year and he was like why do you keep saying this is messy this is fine a because I mean I was tidying it before he came but so you know I was delib- I was pushing things away most of my stuff was still at my parents so I think probably quite a few people in my life don't perhaps know the extent of it when it's been really bad and in my parents at there are three rooms and it's a wall up there interesting and I've had so many times where you know just sitting in it sobbing and I don't want that to be the case anymore so this is part of the catharsis of doing this play and I am better than I was definitely but still way to go think and if it's not too much to ask if your journey with those belongings because I can see when you when you're thinking about it you're already going there in your head and thinking oh that's making me feel kind of low thinking about that if you could press a button and they're dealt with would you? I don't know. Possibly not, because it's led to all sorts of other things and creativity. Oh, yeah. And I think a lot of people have problems with things. It's been very difficult finding guests for this podcast. Not because there aren't many hoarders, there are millions of people who hoard. It's because there's so much shame attached to it and people don't necessarily relate to hoarding behaviours because of the way that hoarding is stigmatised in the media. I know a number of people that I would say have problems with things but they wouldn't necessarily think to talk about it or they haven't got to the stage yet where they feel like they're ready to deal with it. So I think it's all part of me and who I am and even though I've found that really difficult I don't think I'd wipe it no doing that and coming to that realization and writing about it and finding your creativity again or finding it in a way where you felt like you could share your writing for the first time is the kind of dog that led you down that path in a way but I suppose what I meant was now if you could now yeah I can see it in your face you're like oh god what's the, what does that feel like it, perhaps I it's want too, to be too free of it question. I would like to be free of you would like to be free yeah, of it definitely and free of those belongings would yes. be to be free of that yeah thing. yeah it would feel like that interesting feels like a tether mm-hmm. the only thing I can compare it to I suppose is I remember when my granddad moved out of the, his shared home with my granny and he went into a much smaller accommodation which is probably it's such a common occurrence that there's probably a lot of people's first encounter with let's say looking at somebody through their belongings somebody's life and my mum eventually having to hide some bits from him I can say that now because he's passed away but she had to hide some things from it because there wasn't time he wanted to look at everything and she knew that and she knew that was important for him but there were some things she was like I know that this is just a bag full of envelopes and I can throw it away but she said he was really struggling because he to let go of the memories of his wife yeah and of course she was in everything how do you choose which bits to take with you 
So it's almost that, isn't it? Instead of saying no to something, you've got to say, if I can take five things with which five fill me with the most love and the most joy and I can take with me? And I've just got to say that the rest of it, saying goodbye to it, will buy me space. That's it. It's filling up physical space, but it's also, it's taken up a lot of my energy, not just having the stuff and trying to clear it out week after week, but also the compulsion to buy more and go to sample sales. And I spent a lot of time traveling around London, different places, sample sale shopping, charity shopping, boot sale shopping, January sale shopping. Mm -hmm. So, and that took me away from actually being creative. But I think that was part of the problem. I was too scared to go for things. And so this was a comfort blanket just collecting these things that would make my life better yes and that's the point where it's i suppose it tips over into something that is no longer serving the comfort it once gave you because it's now standing as a barrier to other things that you're trying to do there was a line in the play and i think it might have gone now in fact i'm almost certain (laughs) it it has because it'll be in the play text yeah it will be in the text which you can buy (laughs) um very reasonable i believe it's 7.99 and it's 8.99 but that extra pound is really (laughs) worth it it was a line that you said something the compulsion to go to the same for the fear of what I might miss yeah and I think that's very telling because for me shopping is joy and shopping is fun and for so many people that's the case and we're targeted that way you know we're sold capitalism is joy buy your happiness your happiness will not happen at home you you have to buy it into your home through a scented candle or a cushion and then people will love you and that's how consumerism works so we are all victims of that so at what point does it tip into something and I suppose I could really hear that in that moment of like I have to go to that cell because what if I miss that bargain yeah what if there's that perfect thing there and I haven't got it and somebody else has? I still feel like that. Mm. I mean, I used to email designers if I couldn't go to their sample sales. And I got to know people. So I remember, I think it was a Peter Jensen sample sale. I couldn't go and it was the last one they were ever doing. And so I emailed and said, please, can I come in? I can't come to the sale. Can I come in early? And they said, they were really kind. And they were like, yeah, no worries. I probably shouldn't say decider public service announcement do not email designers they will not respond um they might if you've got if you've got the gift of the gab like laura has but she's a published writer guys so <laughs> but yes i emailed and i went along and it was amazing so i was in there on my own with all these beautiful things really discounted and i have an amazing time sample cells are wonderful places of i course. still love them of course they have an amazing one at somerset house and and it's all for charity i found the most incredible things the problem was not the sale it was just my compulsion for what I was addicted to the things and I would find reasons to buy everything and go home barely able to I mean I had an amazing time doing it had an amazing time going through my stuff afterwards it was just had nowhere to store it and I wasn't buying things in my size because I don't like my body and so I would be thinking I would slim into it I have a lot of things I can't wear which is not uncommon women to be sold that idea and really common for us to keep those things in our cupboards and use them as a stick to beat ourselves with almost like to almost actively surrounding yourself with things that are yes beautiful and yes full of the giddy memory of finding them and the absolute sort of like uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear I'm I, I'm not going to, but I'm going to use a word that's naughty. This sort of orgasmic moment of like finding it and taking it to the tilt and having it be yours and in a bag and you leave and then getting it home and finding it's not something that you can wear. It's a piece of art that you love, but that looks at you and goes, you can't put me on. Which is not a healthy relationship to have with the things in your home or your bedroom, which is where your clothes live, where you sleep, you know. No, it's not healthy. It's sort of, it's the cycle of consumerism and, and women feeling like they're not good enough. I mean, that was it for me. And I desperately wanted to work in fashion. I desperately wanted to be thinner. I thought that was the answer to everything. And I really held myself back from doing those things until recently. 
and the clothes because you're right it is a um yeah it keeps us spending money it keeps us with our eyes not on our government but on our own bodies going well I would have gone to that rally but I had to go to the gym so (laughs) you know and I think there's truth in that you know consumerism it moves money around it makes us keep spending on those things because they'll be the thing that fixes my mum actually I think what we share is I've always been really interested in clothes in fact in stand-up I do a bit where I because I generally speaking these days a lot of my clothes when I do stand-up are quite kind of you know edging on the androgynous and I quite often wear lumberjack shirts and I really like that aesthetic and I I've always enjoyed the kind of play the kind of role play and gender play and that of clothes and my mum definitely gave that to me like she loves clothes and she very much and I did the same and you did the same moved to London at either 16, 17, 18 and had that aspirational view that very Carrie Bradshaw in New York it's share in Clueless it's that I will be an anonymous person in the city who dresses like a grown up and so people treat me like one there's a bit in the the play you talk about a specific outfit being a replica of something I remember buying and I must have only worn these shoes twice. I bought in a charity shop in Chiswick, in an Oxfam. I remember because it was incredibly expensive, even for back then, which was 2000 when I moved to London. And it was like the Marilyn Monroe skirt. It's like a white pleated kind of calf length skirt. And I felt like a million whatevers. And I bought these red or dead white stilettos to go with it. And they had stripy, like multicolored rainbow stripes on the inside. The skirt was too small and the shoes were so uncomfortable. I think I wore the outfit once like going down Chiswick High Street and I felt like such a grown-up. Never wore it again. Uh, but it's bought into that idea of I will feel like somebody. I will dress like somebody and therefore I'll feel like it. So I, d- I totally get all of that, the ideology of that in shopping. It's definitely that, isn't it? Yeah, and that you have to have a certain aesthetic. In fact, Caitlin Moran, and I know we talked about this at the beginning of rehearsals because we were like, oh, we should invite her, see if she's in Edinburgh, (laughs) wrote a brilliant article years ago entitled something like Don't Rush Me When I'm Getting Ready. And it was about this concept of don't rush me when I'm getting ready. This is not a poetry recital. Because women are very often, when they leave the house, going into battle. And because I don't know what army I'm fighting today, I don't know what uniform to wear. And I just thought, oh, that's such a brilliant way of putting it. Because I do think, and uh, a family member recently threw threw a surprise party for another family member, and our biggest anxiety as a group of women in the family was, will she know what to wear? Because what have you told her? What event have you told her she's going to that she will know what to wear for that? And it's some of it, yes, I'm sure, is about vanity and consumerism, but some of it is also about knowing how to perform the role that we need to socially in that space. Am I being too quote, flirty? Am I being perceived as too professional and therefore too masculine? How am I going to navigate this situation where women have historically been quite owned and therefore passed around by other people? So how do you wear an outfit that asserts yourself enough, but also makes you seem soft enough to be talked to and flirted with and all of the stuff that we have to think about? Sorry, that suddenly became very political. But I think it's interesting that our obsession with clothes is very important to us, a lot of us. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. shopping for a dress to wear to your partner's 
gala that they were hosting and it was a really important event that I assumed I was going with them as their partner because they had talked about being there with their girlfriend previously and I was really nervous about it because the person they'd gone out with before was very beautiful and kind of fit that type that I wanted to be and I found this dress that I thought was was quite nice and then I remember sitting with them in the car and I was like oh what the details of the gala and they basically told me that I wouldn't be able to go because I wasn't of status I was thinking before we came in here about the different points where my shopping addictions got worse and my hoardings got worse and that relationship was definitely a trigger point not feeling good enough I mean I allowed him to make me feel like that but I remember it getting quite bad after that trying to find better things to be able to wear to events or to try and better myself so that maybe one day I could go to that gala or that event and and be good enough and is that through the lens of looking back on it that is more obvious yeah you can see like ah I had a spike in that behavior at that point yeah that's also when that happened yeah And I I started seeing a therapist and I did say, I think my main motivation for going to the psychotherapist was to try and figure out why I hoarded. And we actually went off on loads of different tangents and I was like, oh, this is not really linking up. But actually it all did. And loads of things transpired that we sort of came to the conclusion that I have OCD and I'm currently undergoing an ASD. I'm waiting for this ASD assessment. And apparently there were loads of links with ASD and hoarding. And, um, you know, I mean, it might turn out that I don't have it, but all roads were point that way it's just again that I didn't see that in myself because of the narratives that I see on television and in the media and what my therapist was saying was that if you're trying to fit your neurodiverse brain into a neurotypical world it's very common for people to put a lot of meaning on things or to create safe spaces because you know that you don't quite fit in especially women I think are very good at masking their behavior but inside you don't feel any better so I think that's what I was doing creating worlds for myself that I felt very safe but it wasn't the reality it wasn't the outside I wasn't going out feeling like that and it wasn't until I started writing and actually honoring myself rather than just continuing to collect that I started to feel better interesting and address it I mean there's logic in it because objects aren't as unpredictable as humans nope they're not going to let you down in the same way no and they're easier to read humans are complicated and if you're someone who is struggling to navigate yourself within the world in whatever way being and I hesitate to use the word alone because you weren't really when you were with your things but alone really yeah was safer yeah than being around people who might disappoint you yeah or hurt you mm. yeah I think it's common. I mean, I think everybody probably has too much stuff or they go the other way and they have too little because they throw everything. But there's issues in both. But yeah, it's in, it's interesting. I never thought there would be a link there if that's sort of what we unearthed. That's incredible. Yeah. What, yeah. Where would you say those links for you are between OCD and hoarding? For you, what elements do you think contribute to it? Well, I think that it feels like the OCD was born out of having ASD and not realising. I remember, gosh, being about 10 when I started to struggle to chuck things away. It's weird because I was actually have a a little brother and he would spend his money on anything and everything straight away. I didn't. I was a saver. I was very anxious about money. And then as I got older... I was a bargain hunter. But from a young age, I remember charity shopping and being really excited about getting a bargain. It really did thrill me. And then that just sort of grew. And I think there was a comfort in that link to grandparents as well. And and then everybody has a really complicated life, don't they? Different things happen to you, whether that's abuse or ill health or grief. And then it sort of gets worse at those points. And you turn to things that make you feel safe and comfortable. And for me, that's clothes shopping. Endorphin hit. Yeah. 
I can definitely relate to the yep, same thing, saving money. I was quite stressed about that for some reason as children. I don't know why. And we, yeah, similarly, my mum would say, like, at Christmas, I would always, like, try and unwrap my presents slower than my sister. So I always had some left over. And I would always try and, like, yeah, save money. I didn't want to spend it. And similar with the bargains. And even now, if I'm doing food shopping, I'm straight for the yellow labels. Yeah, I love it. I know if I'm in a town on tour or something, I know what time the M&S is kicking out with the yellow labels. I know I'm not the only act who does that. But I will quite often end up with too much stuff in my basket and actually end up spending more on things that might then sit in the fridge and not get used because I've gone oh but it's it's, it's reduced oh but it's only like 50p and you go yeah but it's not gonna or I'm not gonna eat it or I don't like it I don't even like it yeah <laughs> I don't I don't want to have that for dinner but it is cheap which is funny isn't it there must be something in it that's useful for our survival that kind of nesting I don't know at some point along the way those things have been useful to us and they've just got to a point where they're, they're not or in your case got to a state where it's actively standing in the way also I think you know, you read fashion magazines at Sex and City. We've talked about it a lot. We've watched it together. Yes. Um, that had a huge impact on my young life. Massive. You read any of the fashion magazines, all of the clothes in there are expensive. Expensive. They pepper it now with the odd high street thing. But a high street thing, you know, many other people are going to be wearing, whereas the really expensive stuff. And so I was always very aspirational about, I really wanted to better myself. I really wanted to not worry about money. And then when I moved to London, I don't know whether you found this, but I was quite shocked by how much money there was you'd be sitting with someone who had a handbag that cost your month's rent and that was really not a big deal for them walking around bond street the money is horrifying what people drop on things and even my friends some of my friends at uni would be like oh i'd spent 300 quid on a pair of shoes or something and and i'd be like how how did how so i never had that type of money and I had a primary school teacher who always taught us to be well spoken so my brother has a jana accent plymouthian accent i don't so i think maybe i was perceived to be posher than I was and so I was just trying to fit into an yeah. upper class when I wasn't. Do you think that's because you felt like you presented as that so you navigate so you kind of slid into those sects but were scared that you didn't have the money to kind of live the lifestyle? Yeah, or the attitude. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I don't feel comfortable in those rooms because I don't know what it feels like to have that amount of money or to have that safety net and as artists there's a big divide isn't there that there are the people that are struggling all the time and having to hustle for everything and you know the people that just it's just kind of easy for them it's not easy but they don't have to worry so much and I was always very envious of those people and I was desperate to work in fashion journalism and you had to work unpaid in London for like a year so the only people that I knew that could do it already lived in London or they had wealthy parents who could afford to pay their rent there so I couldn't do any of that stuff and I had to go down different routes which is why it's so thrilling to have written an article for Vogue recently which is so exciting which will be out when this podcast is but oh my god guys that felt amazing to I don't me. want to say go and buy Vogue but if you can read it for free in a cafe please do it's online anyway it's online you can read it for free online it's taken me a longer time to get there and obviously I'm not a fashion journalist and that's not my ambition anymore but that was always what I wanted and I never felt like I could occupy those spaces I didn't know a lot of the designers couldn't access them in the same way so that's why it felt really lovely to be able to go to sample sales and the clothes at sample sales are cheaper than the high street a lot of the time not all the time sometimes they would still be really inaccessible but loads of times you go to things and there'd be a designer that I'd never heard of but they're on Net-a-Porter and everything would be £20 and they'd give you a glass of Prosecco or something and it's just I remember just when you incredible. told me this and I was like this is dangerous Laura because you're going to get me going it's to dangerous. Yeah, I went. 
this whole <laughs> process has just been about indoctrinating me into this process and you're just going to hand over your addiction. Um, but I can see how you do because you go, oh. Yeah. And the thing about Sex and the City, and we talked about this, oh my God, just the dream and like sharing Clueless, that kind of like the rotating wardrobe. Yeah. Carrie Bradshaw, now it was a big closet compared to most people's because you could walk in it. There's no way all the outfits that she wore over the years would fit in there. No, no way. So very unrealistic standard to live up to, guys. Nor could she buy those things on a salary that she would have. A hundred percent. As a columnist, there's absolutely no way. Absolutely right. And eat out all the time. And I know that those programmes are aspirational and they're supposed to be kind of ridiculous and kind of fabulous and our generation as well, like watching Friends and being like, oh, Joe's a struggling actor with a 7,000 foot square apartment. Just like made no sense at all. But you are, you're so impressionable when you're younger and you think, how have people got all this money and I'll be fine. One of the first jobs I had in London, I was sat with a woman about three years younger than me. I was in my mid to late 20s and she was talking about designers that she'd bought and how she went up to Edinburgh every year, Edinburgh Fringe from the age of like five. I didn't go to Edinburgh until I was in my 30s I wouldn't have been able to afford to and I was just thinking she was talking about it was something about being 15 and like she'd got something for her birthday like a designer piece and I was thinking fucking hell I was being like fingered in the night covers of Plymouth (laughs) (laughs) and wearing like new touch which was you could buy at the bottom of town and it was like five five pounds an item I'm sure she was probably doing things like that too but with nice clothes (laughs) (laughs) there's posh pants on so I I remember feeling like oh god I don't really know how to present myself And, and with the added thing of having potentially ASD and not realising it as well I just didn't know how to navigate any of that and probably so didn't do it very well so growing up my sister's godmother is my mum's best friend and she's the most wonderful woman who didn't have children so she treats us very much as extension of her children really and so when we were growing up she would take us on these amazing holidays she's very wealthy and her partner is particularly wealthy they would take us on these treat nights where they would take us to London take us shopping they would give us money a dream and yeah and we would stay in a wonderful hotel and eat the most amazing food and then we'd come home again but it was interesting because you get like a little taste of that lifestyle and then go home and because of that I think I'm quite good at navigating different situations I don't have that kind of income I don't have that kind of money but I can quite quickly pretend that I'm you know like I, I can lean into that I can <laughs> pretend to be that kind of person yeah but what it also showed me if I'm being totally honest is that and she's absolutely wonderful my auntie and they're brilliant people it doesn't necessarily buy you happiness it definitely doesn't And beyond a certain amount of money, a meal can only be so good. What you're actually paying for beyond a certain amount is the exclusivity of the place where you're sitting. It's not be surrounded by people like us. You know, like that's what you're really paying for. And it's wonderful. And we get to, we're very lucky. You know, a couple of months ago, she took us out for lunch again and we got wonderfully treated and beautiful champagne. And and it's wonderful. But it's lovely to come home again and go, you know what? I just couldn't justify that kind of money. Very easy to say that when you're not the one paying, isn't it? (laughs) And you're like, thank you so much. I just couldn't live this lifestyle. But interestingly, though, she's not, she doesn't spend frivolously on things at all. She has quite simple she's not one of those people you come around and she's got new bits of gadgets or whatever she's quite practical in her approach to things but and I wonder if that a little bit is a generational thing because you know she's in her 70s and our generation is very much sold a consumerist idea and it's fine because Primark are doing it so why wouldn't we sell you a Prada version exactly the same you would spend a thousand pounds on a handbag today and next season there'll be another one so throw that one away that's just madness isn't it that's what fashion does it's literally telling you four times a year that you should buy something new you should change your wardrobe but you're not good enough anymore it's really frustrating mm. I think there is a change in fashion towards sustainability, sustainability I think is a huge push my mum has a, a dress agency in the Cotswolds called the Attic and Chipping Camden it's fabulous they started that over 10 years ago and she loves it 
She loves the social element of shopping. She loves the body positivity side of it. She loves the way in which women's clothes can make them feel good. And so her and a friend, about 10 years ago, after she wasn't needed at her job anymore, she was like, I don't need now to go back to work. She was at that sort of re-retirement age. And she was like, a friend of hers, over a few glasses of wine, as one does, at a pine table in the Cotswolds in front of your agar, went, oh, wouldn't it be great if we set up a shop? We could set up a shop. It's like an eBay shop, but for ladies who wouldn't shop on eBay, women in the middle of the countryside who need to try something on. They said there's buckets of money around here, but there's also loads of people without buckets of money. The kind of people who would buy an outfit once, work to Cheltenham races, and then never want to be seen dead in it again. We should have a shop for people like that. So they'll go and they'll accept clothes and they sell it on your behalf 50-50. So they've got everything from kind of, I don't know, like nice high street, like Jaeger and your like your hob up to Prada coats and that people bring them and they're like, I bought this, I never wore it. It was two grand new. And they'll be like, okay, great we sell it for 400 quid you get 200 we get 200 and it's amazing and that sustainability side now that started as like a fun hobby and now it's so popular because of the sustainability side of it people don't want to go and buy something new they would rather save something from going in the bin and that's interesting because i suppose we've come full circle in a way rescuing something that genuinely was going to go somebody didn't need it anymore and instead of them holding on to it in their closet they can take it to somewhere like a dress agency and say is it worth you selling this will somebody else find love and joy in this and give it a home and wear it because it shouldn't be hanging in the wardrobe. It should be loved. So I've been asking guests to pick an item to give to a charity shop, but I'm not going to ask you because you don't have a problem with things. So I'm going to be donating an item to charity with a story attached. So the idea behind this is that a lot of people find it really hard to let go of things because they have stories attached to them. And I had a really amazing conversation with a curator at the box in Plymouth, and she was talking about how things get donated to the box, but they can't keep them all. And even though those things have great sentimental value to the person that's giving it in, the box can't keep everybody's clothes and there's a real sadness to that this feeling that oh my goodness where is this story going to go if I can't pass it on if I'm not going to write about it so I'm asking people to send in a picture of their clothing a story attached to it I will print off a fabric QR code on sustainable fabric from Shekinah Mission charity shop and then I will send it back to them and they can tack it into the item give it to the charity shop and then we will pinpoint where things have been placed and so the idea is obviously that people's stories then will pass down and they don't know where they'll end up they might end up on the other side of the world or Oh my god that's so cool yeah so i'm gonna donate a pizza palotto for target dress that i've worn a few times and it was in my london heyday and it was one of the only dresses that i could actually wear that i bought in my size and i wore it to a number of parties and, and got quite a lot of joy out of it but i don't wear it anymore so i'm gonna pick a story i'm gonna pick one of the evenings i wore it out and, and i'm gonna give that to shekinah Such mission a good idea Thank because you. you're right it's not that we're trying to hold on to right. is it it's the story it's the, the story memory. And you're right, you know, I was thinking about what you were saying at the beginning, you keep maybe a few things. I had a number of things from my nan and there was like a moth-eaten scarf that smelt of her for a few years, but it does not smell of her now. So in the end, my mum was like, please get rid of that. She wouldn't want you to keep that. So I did. I have a little bottle of Cote Lamont perfume that was hers. It's still got a little bit in it. I wouldn't use it, but I sniff it every few days. I mean, sometimes it might be longer, but it really just takes me back to her. Um, And that's the only thing I need really from her. And she died when I was 18, but I just remember things really vividly when I smell that. I don't need anything else from her so that you know is that and a lot of the things I have are memories but a lot of the things I bought for future use which is the interesting thing about hoarding is people tend to either have things because they think they might be useful or they hold a dream or they are things that they are scared to let go of because of the memories so I might donate other things that have maybe dreams attached and I can say that I dreamt of wearing this to the Royal Opera House maybe you will get to do that but I'm not ever going to wear that thing so that's a lovely idea, isn't it? Thank you. That kind of 
yeah, passing things forward in the same yeah. way. Like one day I hoped I would. And sharing histories because we're all stories, aren't we? We absolutely are. I also, I mean, yours would be a much more romantic place to, to end that. But actually, I was thinking when you were talking about that, I saw on Twitter a while ago someone talking about how like, are you even a human if you haven't got an unnecessary stack of goo glass ramekins in your cupboard because you think you might do something <laughs> yes. creative with them one day? <laughs> and, and I think we all have that side of us. Yeah. That they, oh, that project. Actually, if you haven't had time in your life for that project, all it will really do is haunt you. And it will look at you and say, I'm an unfinished project. Exactly. Or I'm an unstarted thing. Yeah. So maybe give me away. Yeah. Somebody else might actually use me. And thank you for being in this play because this feels like not just a cathartic thing. I do hope that people might watch this and it might spark something in them. So thank you for being a part of that. I honestly think it will. I just I'm completely in love with it and I cannot wait to share it with people. I think it's gonna be so much fun. Thank you so much for coming in, Addy. Thanks for having me. Hidden by Things was supported by the Space and Arts Council England with funding from the National Lottery. Sounds composed by Ellie Showering, produced by Laura Horton and Eric Hughes. The series was recorded at the Kintsugi Project CIC.